Today's reading is Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our own self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Thank you, Rob. I don't know where Pastor Josh Sanders got off to, but I can't believe you would pick that song for today. What an incredible truth that we just sang together, and uh, I think I'm still recovering from that song, but could we just together as a church family affirm that he is worthy by putting our hands together and just praising our great God this morning. I'll go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning. If you need a copy of God's Word, there's a copy in the seat pocket in front of you. The scripture will be on the screen, but we're going to dive into Romans chapter 6 this morning and I've got to tell you this is one of those chapters that when we began this series several months ago I just couldn't wait to get here. We've said it before but when when we started Romans several months ago as a church family or a couple prayers that I had personally for you and for us and one of those prayers specifically was that as a result of going through the book of Romans all of us as the redeemed would have such a incredible high view, this grandiose view of the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would without question know that the gospel is gloriously good news, and that would just be deeply rooted down into our heart. The second prayer that I had specifically going into Romans is that we would grasp in a life-altering way the reality that the gospel of Jesus has implications into every single area of our lives. In fact, I would even go as far to say if the gospel is not transforming every area of your life, you need to question whether you've been transformed by the gospel at all. The gospel of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has fully accomplished is an incredible message, but the implications of what Christ has done trickle down into every single area of our lives. Now when I was in college, I came to understand this much 
more than I had before I went into college. I had a mentor that kind of walked me and a bunch of college guys, and I probably shared this with you before, but he, he walked us through the book of Romans and sections of Romans, and I still remember what God did in my life as a result of that study through the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 5, I was just overwhelmed with the reality of all that Jesus had accomplished on our behalf that was mine by faith alone. And then I remember getting to Romans 6 and 7 and 8 and just the incredible reality that yes, this gospel that has changed me and what Christ has done in changing me literally affects what I do on Monday morning. It literally transforms everything about my life. It literally changes how I treat my parents. It literally changes how I relate to the opposite sex. It literally changes how I spend my money. It literally transforms how I make decisions and plan my future and plan my days. It has implications into every area of my life. And man, that was just life altering for me, especially in Romans 6, 1 through 14, that we're going to look at this morning. So Rob has already read it. We're, we're going to try to walk through these verses and and I think it's going to be life-altering for you as well. I hope you're reading through and the reading plan that we provided for you. I know our life groups are studying through this. Behind the message again on Wednesday night, we dive down deeper into the message. But I really hope that you are reading through the book of Romans on your own. Because if you are, that means you've read this section at least twice before we come in here on Sunday morning. You're ready for us to walk through this together. So look with me, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to read down through these verses, make some application to our life this morning. So Paul's going to begin here in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, with a tension. There's a tension that exists, and it comes out as he writes, and you can feel this tension, and maybe you've had this question before, or maybe you've been posed with this question before, but the question is something like this, if we, as the people of God... If we are justified by faith alone, apart from anything we do, and if by faith we have been justified before God, we have been made right before God, and our sins are forgiven, past, present, future, they are all forgiven. The penalty of sin is gone, and we are completely secure in Christ Jesus. Then does that give us a license just to sin all we want? Maybe you've been asked that question before. Maybe you've thought that question before. The Apostle Paul was literally accused of teaching an immoral gospel because of the, I mean, the incredible, lavish grace of God that seems so overwhelming to those who hear it and have not been affected by it. The question would be something like this. Okay, well then how are you going to restrain the behavior of people? What keeps people from just sinning all they want? If these incredible truths of the gospel are real in reality, is the lavish grace of God a license to sin? So Paul deals with this here, and he begins in chapter 1, I'm sorry, at verse 1 of chapter 6, and he says, so what shall we say then? That's a rhetorical tool, a, a dialogue that's going on. This question has been posed to him. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You heard last week, Pastor Daniel walked us through Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 ends by saying, where sin increases, grace abounds. 
You can't out the grace of God. So those with very limited understanding of what all that means in us might be tempted to say, well, heck, just go sin all you want. What's the difference? That's what Paul was accused of at times. Paul's going to deal with that here, and he goes on down to verse 2, and he deals with it, and he says, by no means. This is a strong statement. It, it's a, it, 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 may it never be in another translation. He says, how, how can we... Who have died to sin, a reality of the gospel that we'll talk about this morning. How can we who are now dead to sin still live in it? Paul says, if you only understood the depths of the gospel, you wouldn't even venture such a question. The idea is this. How can we who have now been set free from sin's penalty, removed from the immediate power of sin in our life, how in the world can we as transformed, redeemed people of God still live in sin? How is that possible, Paul says. Paul deals with the jaw-dropping implication of the gospel here. And I hope as, you, as you've been reading through that, even as we read it this morning, it ought to capture you. Paul declares something to be true of every believer. He says, we have died to sin. What does that mean? I'm going to talk about that this morning. We, we have now, as the people of God who are in Christ, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, Paul's going to deal with it. He says, you want to talk about our relationship to sin, let me declare something that's true on the authority of God's word, Paul says, believers in Christ have died to sin. We have a transformed relationship because of Jesus in our daily, moment-by-moment lives to this hideous, tragic, maniacal, murderous thing called sin. Believers do not relate to sin like we used to. We can't because we've died to it. What does that mean? Now listen, brothers and sisters, it doesn't get more practical in my life, in your life, than that. Because I don't know what difficulty or tension or mountain or challenge you're facing in your daily life, but you do understand that every broken relationship, every selfish act, every shattered life, every debilitating addiction can be traced back to our battle with sin. And Paul says, let me reveal something glorious to you in Christ as a believer, as an implication of the gospel. You have died to sin. What does that mean? Paul's going to explain it a little bit here. He goes on in verse 3 and 4, and I'm going to walk through these verses, and I'm going to give you one big truth that we're going to wrestle with this morning, and then some big ideas that flow out of that big truth. So verse 3, he, he continues on, and he says, do you not know? That, that's a huge statement when you're reading through the Bible. You need to read it as though you don't know, or maybe we don't know. Paul says, to even ask a question like that, there's something that you have no understanding of yet. Paul says, do you not know that all of us believers who have been, that's past tense, baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does that mean, Paul? 
And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, there's some thick language here. And we're going to do our best to explain what all this means because it's incredibly practical. So you hang with me. Paul says, do you not know that every believer was baptized into the very death of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Verse 4. He continues on, he says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, all believers, might walk in the newness of life. Paul, what does all this mean to us? Well, here's your big truth this morning. I hope this will help you. We're going to kind of center on this. Big truth, what Paul's going to just hammer in this passage Hammer in this section is this big, incredible idea, and here it is, that by faith, we believers live in ongoing, dynamic, consistent union. We are in union with Jesus Christ himself. We are united in Christ, the person of Christ. There's an incredible theological reality that it's called the, the union of the believer. We are in union with Christ. Now, what does it mean? What are the implications? Well, let me try to describe this truth that Paul is hammering here for us. Paul uses the word baptism, the word baptizo in the original language. The, the word baptizo, as it's used here, it literally means to immerse into something. It means to, to plunge down into something. The act of baptism pictures this greater reality. Don't think so much Paul here is talking about the moment you were baptized. He is talking about the picture that baptism gives of a much greater reality of your relationship with Christ through faith. Baptism means an immersion into. Baptism means a, a, an all-in with something, an, an identification with something. If you if you're going through a very severe trial, maybe, you could say you have been baptized by fire. You are surrounded by it. You are in it. You are immersed into it. The, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians talking about the children of Israel. It says they were baptized into Moses. That not mean Moses baptized. And the point is they were completely in with Moses, identified with Moses, followed the teaching of Moses. They were in union with Moses is the point. Now hang on to that word picture. Paul says that all of us are, are therefore, we are immersed into the person of Christ. Let me, let me try to explain this concept of union, union with something a little more clearly to you. So if somebody were to come up to me and they were to say, hey Mike, uh, when did you and Jennifer tie the knot? And you didn't know what that meant. You'd go, well, what are they doing tying a knot? That's kind of weird. It didn't make any sense. But you understand the word picture, it's something to illustrate the reality of two lives becoming one, right? So to say that we tied the knot is the same to say that our two lives are no longer separate, they are now one, talking about the thing called the marriage union. Marriage is a visible picture of what Paul is describing here of two lives becoming one. Jennifer and I, because we're married, watch this, the union that we share is not a contract, by the way. The world today is trying to hold out contractual marriage, which says, okay, we're in this agreement with one another. We have a shared agreement. As long as you do your part, I'll do my part. But you back off on your part, I'm backing off on my part. We kind of got an agreement. By the way, that's not marriage. 
Marriage is a covenant. The Bible describes it as a covenant. What's important about that? A marriage covenant is two lives that are intertwined with one another. They share the very life of one another. That's a covenant. That's a marriage union. Therefore, it's a reality. Let me take the metaphor a little bit more. Paul does here. So what happens to Jennifer, in effect, happens to me. And what happens to me happens to her. It, it may be separate events, but if, if I win a million dollars today, right? Publisher's Clearinghouse, man, they're going to call me. I've been waiting for that big call. They're going to call. They're going to say, Mr. Lauren, you won a million dollars. Guess what? We. Really? Some of you are going, you sure about that? I might cut his kind not marriage. If I win a million dollars, we won a million dollars. If I experience a great gift or a reward, or so, we experience that joy. If my wife grieves, I grieve. We've grieved this week. Jennifer lost her father. She's grieving. That means I grieve. Why? Because we're in union with one another. It's called the marriage union. Paul says, now take that analogy. That is the relationship you now have with Christ. You have a shared life with Christ. You are in Christ. And Christ is in you. And what is true of Jesus, short of deity, because we can't become deity, but what is true of Jesus, in many ways, is now true of you. Because you share his life. As a result of, this, this is just immense. As a result of justification by faith alone. You entered into the very life of Christ. It's impossible, by the way, just like marriage, to see where Christ starts and where I start. It's not like, okay, Jesus has this little compartment and I have this little compartment. There's this intertwining of our lives. There's this shared life together. We share his death. We share his resurrection. We share his righteousness, thank goodness. We share his holiness, says Hebrews. We will share in his reign when he reigns over the world. The Bible says we will reign with him. We share in his inheritance. All things are ours. And the Bible says also you will share in his sufferings. That's what it means to be in union. A oneness. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been immersed, baptized into Christ, have been immersed and baptized into his death and into his life, we are united with him. That is a life-altering, eternity-altering reality that you wake up every morning and you are not trying to do your best and trying to follow the rules and trying to live by some external law code. Christ in you the hope of glory. And Paul says the implications of this are just immense. Throughout the New Testament, as we get further on in Romans, Paul's going to use a little phrase to describe this reality. He says, in Christ, in Christ, 
in Christ. That's the reality of this union we have, that our, our lives are so intertwined. In Romans 8.1, you don't have to turn there, he says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, in union with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Because they're Christ's spiritual blessings, and what is Christ is now ours. That's grace. That's the lavish grace of God that we enter into by faith alone. Glorious. Pastor Mike, that is some amazing truth. So what, what are the implications of that union that we now share with Jesus? Well, let me give you a few. Paul does that here. So what are the implications of this union? I'm going to give you a few big ideas that are going to flow out of this. We're in union with Christ. We share his very life. What are the implications? Let me go back to verse 2. Here's one of them. Paul says, shall we continue in sin? The grace may increase. Verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul, how could you say that? How have we practically died to sin? Here's big idea number one. We are dead to sin because when Jesus died, we died with him. With immense implications into our life. Paul says, by, by means of being in union with Christ, when Jesus Christ died, we died with him what does that mean and how does that play out in my Monday morning and Tuesday what does that look like verse 3 he explains it stay with us he says or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death I now identify with the very death of Jesus verse 4 we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we might walk in the newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him, there's that word, union, in the likeness of his death, or a death like his, we believe that we shall also be united in a resurrection like his. Paul alludes to the reality that we are dead to sin, the power of sin in our lives, the reign of sin in our lives because we were crucified with Christ, spiritually speaking. Now, if you haven't already, you're going to, at some point in this message, your mind is going to start thinking, you say, wait a minute. I hear you saying that I, as a believer, am dead to sin. Pastor Mike, I struggle with sin. <laughs> Can I get an amen from anybody, or is it just me? Listen, I've had this passage memorized for years. I am dead to sin, Paul says. The Bible says, I struggle with sin. So when Paul says we are dead to sin, don't be deceived. And we're going to explain this as we go to mean that sin no longer has influence in our daily lives. It does. But what does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, let's keep reading. And what does it mean? Verse 6. We know, verse 6, that our old self, 
If you write your Bible, circle that little phrase, old self, or whatever the word is in your translation. Paul says, okay, let me explain to you what it means we've died to sin because of our union with Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with it. Who's that? The phrase old self here literally refers to our very identity before Christ. The person we were in Adam. We talked about last week. We were descendants of Adam. We were born into Adam. We were of the family of Adam. That was our identity. Sin came natural. It's who we were. We're very good at it. Our very identity was unregenerate, lost, the family of Adam, rebellious. That was my sin-loving, self-centered, rebellious self. Ephesians 2 says that person, that old man, if you will, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. He says, among them you all too formerly lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the sins of the mind, and by nature were children of wrath, even as the rest. That's my old man. That's who I used to be. And that's who all of us are born as, sons of Adam, our old man that sins because it's who we are. The very nature. Now Paul makes an incredible statement here. He goes on and he says, but this old self was crucified with Jesus. Do you know what happened to your old sin nature that ruled and reigned in your life according to this? Paul says, it has been crucified. You're not who you used to be. By faith, you're not that person anymore. Listen to me. The gospel and salvation is not a self-improvement plan. It is a transformation And the Bible says, the old person that you used to be, your very identity being sin in your lostness has been united with Christ and crucified. That old person is dead. And the power or the rule and reign of sin in your life died with it. He said, in order, reading verse 6, in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing. Paul, what do you mean by this body of sin? Theologians for years have debated on this. The best interpretation I can give you is Paul says, the body of sin is the outworkings of our old sin nature. The habits that we had formed, the way we sin, our affections, our thinking, the way we live our lives had been tainted, all of them by sin. And Paul says that old nature has been crucified, that your body of sin might be brought to nothing. The word brought to nothing means rendered powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Body of sin done away, old man crucified. In the original language, past tense, finished actions in the past, done deal, old man crucified, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, present tense, ongoing reality. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. The power of sin is broken in your life. Sometimes I don't feel like it. There's a reason for that. The residue of sin holds over in our life. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. 
But the reality of what is declared to be true about you in faith is this, that you have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you, the old you that lives any longer. There is a new life in you, and that is the very life of Jesus Christ in you, and you are now so intertwined with him. Paul says, he is in you, and you are in him. You're not who you used to be anymore. That's good news, by the way. Only the Bible teaches a transformational message that changed our very core to the identity of who we are. Every other system in the world says, try harder, do better, reform yourself, clean yourself up, get yourself better. Jesus says, no, come die with me. And up out of that death, there will be resurrection life for every believer who is in union with Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, the life I now live in this flesh or this body, this life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The basis of my life is the gospel reality and the implications are I'm in union with Christ, I'm not who I used to be, and by the way, I'm not yet who I'm going to be either. That's the progressive reality of sanctification, that Christ is working in you. We'll talk more about that next week. So big idea, number one was this. We're dead to sin because when Jesus died, we died with him, Paul says. Union. The second big idea. Get this here from these verses. says this. We live, we live a completely new life because when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose with him. <laughs> Identity. We've identified with his death, we've identified with his resurrection, and the implications are vast. What does that mean? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, end of verse 4, we too might walk in newness of life. New life. This is regeneration. This is transformation. This is salvation. This is all that's wrapped up in that newness of life. This newness of life is not a similar experience from the past, but a qualitatively, a qualitatively different life. It's not an improvement. It's a new life. It is in the person of Christ. That is why Jesus says, you must be born again. A new life must begin. And that's the new life of Christ in you and me. Christ in us sharing his very life. We share the very life of Christ. It is new life. We walk in the newness of life. Because we've been united in his very resurrection. Now let me illustrate this really quick. So back in elementary school, we, we learned something in science class. Maybe you learned this. Go ahead and put a picture of our friend up there. Yeah. You know who that guy is? It's a caterpillar, by the way, if you don't know. We learned in science class that that caterpillar, it kind of grovels around on the ground, and it's, it's earthbound, and it, it stays down on the ground and wrestles around in the dirt and on leaves and twigs, but then at some point in the life of that caterpillar, a improvement project takes place, right? 
Wrong. A total transformation takes place, and that groveling earthbound caterpillar becomes a, right on cue, awesome, a butterfly. You say, Pastor Mike, that's incredible. What does that have to do with this? A transformation has taken place, and what's this? That butterfly will never be a caterpillar again. There is new life. Woven into the very fabric of nature are pictures of what God says is true of every believer. This thing has, where'd my butterfly go? This butterfly, I guess it got raptured right out of here, I don't know. This butterfly has power and ability and capacities and a future and a life it never had as a caterpillar. It's not who it was before. Paul says that's true of you. Now watch this. Watch. <laughs> Can that butterfly fly down and grovel down in the dirt like it used to? Sure can. But it's not who it is anymore. See, Paul is saying the reason we don't live in sin like we used to it's because we're not who we used to be if you pass a butterfly and it's wallowing in the dirt you go what are you doing man it's not who you are fly little butterfly fly why because it's who you are Paul says by means of your union with Christ you're dead to sin your old man is gone and you've been now raised to walk in newness of life you have a new life in Christ live who you are in Christ verse 5 for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his the two go together united in death united in resurrection this phrase look at verse 5 in the ESV it says if we have been united with him circle that little phrase in verse 5 this is a beautiful word picture built into the text the verb or the phrase that's used here only appears here in Romans 6 verse 5 anywhere else in the Bible the word united with him if we translated it literally would say we have been planted together with him and in English we would read that and we go what in the world does that mean am I a seed watch the picture here is literally the idea in an agricultural world that it was written in to take seed and you sow these seeds together and these seeds that have been sown together are going to go down into the ground and I'm told I'm not a farmer you can correct me on this seeds go down into the ground and guess what before they sprout they gotta what die that's the picture but when those seeds die they die together but then they what they rise up together and they, 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 they come to life together and they bear fruit together that's the picture that Paul is giving here of our union with Christ it's like seed that goes in the ground we die together and then we raise up together Albert Barnes great commentator said it this way you go ahead and put that quote up by Albert Barnes he says alluding to this idea hence it means intimately connected or joined together and here it denotes that Christians and the Savior have been united intimately in regard to death and it is therefore natural to expect that like grain sown at the same time they should grow up in a similar manner and resemble one another 
In other words, the seed that's sown together is going to grow up together and bear fruit. And Jesus said it this way. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, by nature of our death with Christ, there is the assurance of our life and our fruitfulness fruitfulness in Christ and primarily that fruit is the very characteristic of Jesus Christ coming out in your life love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness the capacity which you did not have before but you do have now because of Christ's life in you glorious united with Christ verse 8 he goes on he, he said Mike, can we stop there so much? I can't even, no, he keeps going. Verse 8, he says, and now if we have died with Christ, we believe that, future tense, we will also live with him. Paul says, you got a newness of life that starts now. You have a guaranteed future that you are going to live with Christ. Listen, I'm not all that I'm going to be yet, and neither is you. But there will be a day, Paul says, that the work in you is complete, and he makes you like the sun in all his glory. Why? Because his glory is your glory. You will share in his very glory because you are in union with him. Glorious. Glorious. He goes on in verse 9, he says, we know. And by the way, if you notice, all the way through nine verses, Paul hasn't given us a a single command yet. The point is, just like Josh said earlier, these are truths that are true. These are realities about you. Your life is built not first on what you do. It is built on what he has done, and then we obey out of that. This is what Christ has done. Verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Death is defeated. Christ defeated death, and you defeat death also. You will reign with him forever. Death has no power over the child of God. Glorious. Big idea number one was this. We are dead to sin because when Jesus died, we died with him. Big idea number two is this. We live a completely new life because when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose with him. These are bedrock truths given to us in Romans chapter 6 that we build our lives on. But then Paul comes back and he says this in verse 11. Now remember... It hadn't hit you already. I said it's going to hit you earlier. You hear all these truths. Dead to sin. Raised to walk in the newness of life. Mike, I still struggle with sin. It's not what I want to do. As Paul says in Romans 7, it's not what I want to be. Why do we still struggle with sin if it has been defeated? If sin is a conquered foe, which it is. It is no longer your master, which it is not. Why do we still struggle? Paul goes on, verse 11. Stay with me. He says, all of this. So, concluding application, verses 11 through 14, very quickly. We'll expand these more next week. So, here's your first command. You must also, you you also must consider 
consider. Claim it to be true. This is not name it and claim it. It's true whether you claim it or not. But the reality is you consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why do we do that? This is your third big truth and we're finished. Or a big idea. Big idea number three is this. Sin is defeated but not eliminated. The power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin is atoned for in Christ. But there is a residual effect to sin in the lives of every one of us. We for years learned how to sin and we were really good at it. And those habits and those inclinations are embedded in our very thought processes. We still find it easy at times to sin. But watch this, as a Christian, it is a struggle. And it ought to be a struggle. That's indication that you're not who you used to be. Let me illustrate this the best way I know. Sin is defeated, but it's not eliminated. In 1945, the empire of Japan was defeated by allied forces. The war was over. The enemy, if you will, was defeated. For years following that, Japanese holdouts, as they were called, continued to fight on the islands throughout the South Pacific. Skirmishes continued even though the war was over. And I even found this, this was incredible. One private in the Japanese army did not surrender. They found him in Indonesia and he finally surrendered in December 1974. That's sin. Sin's defeated. The, your old man is gone. But there are skirmishes in your life day in and day out. This battle with your old habits and your old ways of thinking and Paul says here's how you battle you claim what is true you are dead to sin the battles have to be fought verse 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you may that to make you obey its passions because I'm telling you sin's going to try to take back ground lost so to speak and it's a battle it's a daily battle Paul says you've got to recognize it as a battle. It's a daily fight. Sin is defeated. It's, it's a beaten enemy, but it's not completely eliminated. I'll give you a final illustration and we'll close. Children of Israel, in the book of Joshua, I've been reading through that. Children of Israel were told by God. By the way, the team can come on up and just begin to play. We're going to kind of enter into a time of response. Children of Israel were told by God, the promised land's yours. Go take it. Enemies defeated. Battle's over. You've won. It's yours. And they went in. And did they just go in without a fight? No. Every city, every village, every piece of land they took was a fight. Joshua 1, or Joshua 11, 19 says, There was not a city which made peace with the children of Israel. They took them all in battle. With your old propensities, with our old habits, the residue of sin remains in our life. And by the way, God has designed it as such that we lean into Him and we walk in dependence on Him. And He goes on, verse 13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You are dead to sin, you are alive to God, and your members as instruments of righteousness, verse 14, for sin will have no no dominion over you since you are not under the law which only brings cursing but you are under grace which enables you to live this new life Christ in you
So we fight by reckoning what's true. Christ in me. I have a new identity. I have a new power. We fight on our knees with this thing called sin. We fight by presenting ourselves to this God who has bought us in worship and intimacy and pursuit of Him. And we fight in community with each other. And we'll talk more about that next week. Beloved, you are in union with Jesus Christ. His life is your life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, before we sing together these great truths again that we're about to sing, God, I I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, I pray first that these truths of Romans would sink into our heart and we would consider it so. We would reckon it to be so. We would rest in the truth that we've just read, whether we feel it, whether it looks that way on Monday morning, in faith, we have been redeemed. Our old man is gone. We have been raised to walk in the newness of life. Live consistent with who we are. God, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your marvelous grace that has been poured out on us. Lord, let us just stand in awe of your grace. And I'll just say, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ, the Bible says this, ye must be born again. Everything we talked about this morning, it's new birth. It's not personal grit and effort that comes later in sanctification, but this is, it's all new birth in Christ. The transformation that comes by Jesus Christ through faith. If you don't know Christ, we would love to talk with you before we leave today of how you can come to know this great Savior. Thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.